Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is what Holy Scripture says. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Isn't it good to sing the Psalms together and in particular to remember uh, in that second verse of the hymn of this Psalm, The Lord has scorn on them, laughing and enthroned on high. God brings wrath upon their work, filled with anger. God replies, it's my own holy will that the Christ on earth shall reign. And on Zion's holy hill, my anointed, I'll maintain. Praise God that he has a plan and he is going to execute it. Let's pray before we open God's word together. So our Lord, even as uh, we have sung your word and had it read for us, we're now asking that you would meet with us and help us, teach us, strengthen us, encourage us, rebuke us, have your holy way with us. We ask in the name of Jesus, amen. On January 17, 1994, I was sound asleep in my bed in Santa Clarita, California at 4.29 a.m. On January 17, 1994, at exactly 4.30 a.m., the ground began to shake beneath us in what became known as the Northridge Quake. For 20 seconds, at a 6.8 magnitude on the Richter scale, the ground violently shook up and down. All our dishes fell out of the cupboards, all the contents of our fridge fell onto the floor, and little baby Chloe in her crib bounced across the room to the other side of the room. Praise God, we were all okay. An earthquake. A car accident, a diagnosis, an electrical fault. There are many potential causes to a sudden change in your life. So it should be no surprise to us that this entire created universe is heading toward a day of sudden change. Are you ready to step back into the blessing? Look at Ephesians chapter one for a moment. 
Uh, Paul has begun this letter to the Christians in Ephesus by praising God. Blessed be the God and Father. I'm in verse 3 of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1, 3, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And Paul begins this letter with praising God. And today we want to sort of focus in on something he praises God for, something that happens in the future, something that comes about suddenly, for which Paul is praising the Lord. So we're going to focus our attention on verses 8 through 10. It's a section of this hymn of praise that can feel a little bit like my kids when they were little. Sometimes we would go to the park and they like to do this thing where they all got on the slide at the same time and then you slide down, dunk, 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 one, two, three, four, right out one and rapid fire after the other. So there's this big conglomeration of tiny human bodies at the bottom of the slide. And kind of what Paul is doing here is in, in his, his sort of joy and excitement and praise of the Lord, uh, he's, he's piling up phrases like little kids at the end of the slide. And if we're not careful, we're going to be tempted to just kind of look at that conglomeration of phrases like a bunch of kids at the end of the slide and go, I can't even figure out what's going on there and move on to the next thing. And so part of what I would like to do this morning is to pull one kid off the pile at a time and say, oh, this is the one. They're all, they're all kind of dressed the same. They look the same, but they're actually different. They have different things to say to us. Imagine you're taking a road trip and you're, uh, you're going to Los Angeles. There's a couple of different ways to do that. You can just get in your car and start randomly driving or you can set out the destination first. And that's what we're going to do in these verses. Look with me, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll begin here in, um, in verse 8, the, the riches of his grace, the end of verse 7. Do you hear that, Pete? I'm just getting a little bit of ringing that's thanking. Thank you, brother. Uh, the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, Ephesians 1, 9, according to his purpose... So these are the phrases that are starting to pile up. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so if we're going to go to Los Angeles, which in this case is that last sort of phrase there in verse 10, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, um, I want to lay out the destination first. We're going to start at the end of this little section, and then we'll come back and we'll deal with the things leading up to it. Because if you know you're going to L.A., you know you're going to have to cross a border and you're going to drive through the plains of Iowa and Nebraska. You're going to be bored to tears in Nebraska. And then you're going to finally hit the Rocky Mountains and you're going to have to crawl, you know, cross through the mountains and then the desert. And then you finally reach Los Angeles. Knowing the destination can help make sense out of the route that you're traveling to get there. That makes sense? So we're going to start with a destination. We're going to start with L.A., and then we'll look at the route Paul uses to get there. So the first thing I want you to observe is this. The day is coming. This is my first point. The day is coming where your eternal future will be determined by how you related to Jesus in this life. This is for everybody here. It's for everybody who's ever been made. The day is coming where your eternal future will be determined by how you related to Jesus Christ in this life. So let's look at the bottom of the slide, verse, the end of verse 10, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth in him. Now you notice I added the words in him. You might have a Bible translation that includes those words. I think they should be. The original included it. Typically, it's left out because it starts to sound a little redundant because we see this in him, in him, in the beloved, in him, in him, through him, in him. And a lot of the English translations just kind of leave that one out. The Lexham version has it. The NKGV has it. Other versions try to use other words to get the idea across. I think it's better just to leave it in because what Paul is getting at is that all of this is in him. It's in Christ. 
All of this hinges on Christ. It all depends on Christ. It has to do with Christ. So here's our destination, right? To unite all things, that's material things and immaterial things, the visible and the invisible, to unite all things in Christ. And we say, great. Now what on earth does that mean? <laughs> the word translated here as unite means to gather together under one head in the sense of bring to a conclusion. Paul is saying that all creation will end with a personal meeting with Jesus. Let me repeat that because that's going to help you. He is saying all creation ends with everyone having a personal meeting with Jesus. His point, simply put, is that every created thing will ultimately answer to Jesus Christ. This creation, as we know it, is heading to an end point, a conclusion where all things are going to be evaluated based on how they have related to Jesus. And that is no minor point. Paul makes clear there are two realms, a spiritual realm and a physical realm, both of which are falling under the authority and the judgment or the evaluation of Jesus Christ. Things in heaven, things on earth. So think, first of all, of that spiritual realm, things in heaven. We, we've seen this phrase already. Go, we just read it a moment ago, back in verse 3. Do you see it there? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Where? In the heavenly places. You could translate that just in the heavenlies. In the heavenlies. In the invisible spiritual realm. Look ahead to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6. Uh, God raised us up with him and seated us with him, with Christ, in the heavenlies, in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. And these heavenlies, the heavenly places, are not the same thing as that we often mean when we talk about heaven. Because when we talk about heaven, we're talking about, you know, the, the final place of goodness where no sin remains. And yet the heavenlies that Paul is talking about in this letter to the Ephesians includes both the good and the evil in the spiritual realm. How dare I say that? I'll tell you how I shall dare. Look at Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. Paul uses the phrase again. He says, Ephesians 6, 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, where? In the heavenlies, in the heavenly places. Same phrase, same place, same realm, the unseen spiritual realm. So there is a very real and tangible realm which you and I cannot see now. It is the realm in which the spiritual beings operate. That's the spiritual realm. Then there's the physical realm. Things in heaven, things on earth. And what, what we see and know is the physical realm, right? Things that can be seen with the eyes, things on the earth. That doesn't take a lot of explaining. Look out a window, things of the earth. Look in a mirror, thing of the earth. <laughs> uh, so that which is of the earth. And these two realms, the spiritual realm and the earthly realm, they're related. We saw that back in chapter 6, verse 12. The evil forces of the spiritual realm are attempting to interfere with Christians in the physical realm. And in part, that's because of how annoying the church of Jesus Christ is to Satan. Look at Ephesians 3.10. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now, now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. The church is shouting at Satan and his demons, here's what's coming. A whole group of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation saved by Christ, loving one another in Christ, who will one day be forever with Christ. One day. 
what day? <laughs> On the day every created thing in the unseen and seen realms answers to Jesus Christ. The day, Ephesians 1.10, when God will unite or conclude all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth in him. So that's our Los Angeles. That's where we're heading. That's the final destination. The spiritual realm was broken by Satan's rebellion. The physical realm was broken by Satan's temptation. And they are both waiting to get fixed. And a day is coming when these two realms running in parallel to one another will come together and reach their end point and standing right there will be one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one in whom God chooses to sum up the cosmos. Just as all of God's good purposes for us are in Christ, all of God's good purposes for creation are in Christ. It's a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. It's no wonder then that the guy who wrote this also wrote Romans chapter 8 where he said, Romans 8.22, that the whole creation has been groaning groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Do you feel the groan? This is the day that Paul is pointing at in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, the final destination, the great day, the day of reckoning, which means that's where verses 8 and 9 are heading, all right? That's the, that's the travel, that's the path we, we're going to take to get to verse 10. These lead-up verses to the great day of Christ's return, the lead-up verses are describing the knowability that you can know this fact, and the certainty or the reliability of this fact. So, bottom of the slide is the great day of judgment, the day of the Lord. Let's unpack the phrases that are piled up like the little kids at the end of the slide. Uh, and let's just, to get a little context, we'll start in verse 7. Remember this? In him... Ephesians 1.7, we have redemption through his blood. Remember, the release secured by the payment of a price. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. The debt against you has been erased according to the riches of his grace. We say, amen. We did that one. Good. <laughs> according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Now, all these little stacked up phrases can be categorized under two headings. The first one is this. Okay, so we're, we did the end, now we're backing up. Just want to make sure you're following. <laughs> the reality that your future will culminate in how you relate to Jesus Christ is a fact that can be known. That may not sound like a whole lot right now, but I'll show you why it is. It's a fact that can be known. The second group of phrases, the reality that your future will culminate in how you relate to Jesus Christ is a truth that can be trusted Something future, you got to trust in it. So let's begin with the miracle, which is this is something you can actually know. All right, here we go. This is point number two in the sermon. The reality that your future will culminate and how you relate to Jesus Christ is a fact that can be known. The end of verse 7, his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. All right, let's just get a little bit of joy, right? We have already seen 
You were saved by grace. We've seen his election of you. We've seen his predestination of you. These things happened in eternity past. We have seen his redemption of you and his forgiveness of you in the present, some point in your life. And all of these things, Ephesians 1, 6, are to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has gifted or graced us in the beloved, in the gracious one. And this grace, this free, unearnable immeasurable favor from God. That's what grace is. This grace has been lavished upon you at your conversion. Anybody remember COVID? <laughs> it was meant to be funny. I don't know when it was in the pandemic, but I had to get something at Home Depot. And to get in the Home Depot, you had to use hand sanitizer. And I don't know what the dudes at Home Depot were thinking, but I walked up and I pumped the pump and I proceeded to get hand sanitizer all over my hand and my pants and my shoe. And like, it was everywhere. The, the, you're just like, one pump was six and a half gallons of hand sanitizer. What are they thinking? I was lavished <laughs> with hand sanitizer. That's, what, that's the word Paul uses. And he says, forget the hand sanitizer. You have been lavished with grace. Paul is praising God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, why does Paul start that way? What an interesting start to a sentence. Blessed, praised, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he start that way? Because he gets it. He knows more about grace than you do. He uses the word grace over and over and over through this letter, some 25, 26 times, or variations of it even more. Grace, grace, grace. And you can, you can feel the excitement of Paul in his writing here. Paul wants you to understand what grace is. I want you to understand. I want to understand what grace is. Not only has God saved you by his lavish grace, he has also opened your mind to understand by his grace. He's opened your mind to understand the destination. He's opened your mind to understand Los Angeles. He's opened your mind to understand the day is coming when Christ shall return and the spiritual realm and the physical realm will all stand before him and how they have related to him in life will result in a moment of judgment by the almighty God, Christ Jesus our Lord. This grace that he has given us has overflowed to provide us wisdom and insight that we need to grow in the knowledge of that fact. Look at it. His grace, verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. You maybe don't know this, but in English translations, the original authors didn't have uh, commas, periods, question marks. We just, we, we supply those. And uh, there's some dispute about where the comma would go here. I'd put it at the end of verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, comma, making known to us the mystery of his will. It doesn't make a huge difference, but I think it might help to get what Paul is getting across here. Paul is saying that these, these knowable facts can be summarized in the word mystery. I mentioned that word a couple of weeks ago. What's a mystery? To Paul, when he uses the word mystery, he's describing something which was previously hidden but is now revealed. It's not still a mystery like you can't figure it out. It was previously hidden. It is now revealed. That's why we read from Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, if you go back there from Ephesians 3 verse 4, when you read this, you Christians in Ephesus, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. By my, the things I'm writing, you, you, you're beginning to understand. I, I understand the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles, of which Paul is one, and prophets by the Spirit. So think about this. The mystery of Christ was hidden before, but it is revealed now by the Spirit through the agency of the apostles, the apostles, and the prophets. Have you ever wondered what Isaiah did 
after Isaiah wrote Isaiah 53. You know Isaiah 53? That, that, that section in Isaiah's prophecy that so remarkably describes the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ? Okay, Isaiah wrote that for 600 years before it occurred. What did Isaiah do after he wrote it? We know, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah's writing his thoughts, but then he gets done and he's like, this is the word of God. <laughs> and, and what's he doing? God the Holy Spirit breathed out his word via this man, Isaiah, and then what does Isaiah do? Does he think, oh, that's going to be Jesus, a, a guy who was born in Bethlehem? No. No, it's a mystery to, uh, to him, even to the author. He puzzled over it. He had to study what he wrote in order to try and understand. How do I know that? 1 Peter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, right? The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, those prophets searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What was Isaiah doing after he wrote Isaiah 53? What you do. <laughs> Except he didn't have the New Testament yet. Isaiah couldn't figure out the specifics because it was concealed. It's a mystery. There's a little saying that's attributed to Augustine, um, but he didn't speak in English, so he didn't say it exactly like this, but this is how it's sort of captured. The new, speaking about the New Testament, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. Catchy, yeah? I think by now I'd have it memorized. I have to read it every time. The new is in the old concealed the old is in the new revealed. Augustine didn't say it exactly like that, but that was his point. He was saying what? What was he saying? The types, the illusions, the prophecies that are all through the Old Testament were mysterious. They were hidden. They couldn't be fully understood apart from the revelation of Christ and the New Testament. It was like reading a mystery novel where somebody had ripped out the last chapter and you're like, you've got to be kidding me. I'll never know how it ends. That's a little bit what it was like if you're living in the days of Isaiah. You have some general ideas, but you can't put all the pieces together. Praise God, the last chapter of our Bible has been written. And in one sense, the mystery was not only revealed there, but it was revealed at the cross. That's where everything came together. But if the facts of the mystery were something that any human being could see and plainly see and understand then I would assume that every human being who ever read it would agree with those facts, the facts of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and then be saved. But I don't know about you. I look around and I see men who deny Christ. I see women who reject his offer of salvation. I see children who grow up hearing about Christ and then really begin to question things and wonder, is it all real? We are so broken. We are so damaged by sin. We need grace. You ready? You need grace to know and understand the revealed mystery. The mystery must be revealed to us by the grace of God. Verse the end of verse 7, his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. We get this knowledge at one level uh, at the moment of conversion. But this is the mystery of Christ. <laughs> it's not like there's no more to learn. Once you're saved, you got everything you need, right? No, you've been a Christian a long time. You, you know. You're like, I, how, how did I not know that before? You keep reading your Bible and praying and seeking the Lord and fellowshipping with the saints, and you're like, there's always more to know. That's why the apostle tells the Christians in Ephesus what he's praying for them. What a great thing for you to pray for your fellow members. Look at Ephesians 1 and verse 15. For this reason. So having explained all of that in the big hymn of praise, for this reason, writes Paul, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, because I know you're really Christians, 
I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of what? Wisdom. And of what? Revelation in the knowledge of him. Well, you say they already know him. Yes, they do. Anybody here get married? You're like, I just know her so well. And like three months into the marriage, you're like, yeah, no change. No change at all. I just know her exactly. You know, I, I, everybody I know who gets married is like, oh. <laughs> I mean, most of that's good. <laughs> but you, 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 you realize there was more to know about this person. You've been married for 36 years and you realize there's still more to know about that person. Praise the Lord. There's always more to know about the Lord, isn't there? Paul prays, I want the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. Do you pray for your fellow church members to grow in knowledge? Think about this for a moment. How much do you want to sin when your heart is full of knowledge like this? God set his love on me before the foundation of the world. God set me apart to be one of his own before he made a constellation of stars. God appointed me to be adopted into his family forever out of his own free will. God completely forgave the eternal debt of my sins. And God the Son gave up his own life to pay for my redemption. If all the Christians are thinking those thoughts, how quickly are they running towards sins? People hear the word knowledge and think, oh, you're just a bunch of pointy-headed, stuffy, data-mining, nuclear engineer people. <laughs> I'm sorry if you're an engineer. <laughs> but, but a child can understand these facts we're talking about here because if that child has been saved by God through his grace and granted the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit can make these things known to him. This is information that can be known. You didn't come to your knowledge of these facts based upon your cranium. <laughs> it was God's grace lavished upon you so that you could see it. Have you not been in conversations with other people? And you're like, how, how can you not see it? They see the words on the page, but they don't see it. If you see it, that's grace. And the crowning jewel of this information that he's told us is that a day of reckoning is coming where every soul, every angel, Every particle of creation will be judged based upon how they have related to Christ Jesus in this life. Christians know this. And that knowledge has come to them by the grace of God. But they don't just know it. This is the third point. The reality that your future will culminate in how you relate to Jesus Christ is a truth that can be trusted. Not just known, but trusted. In other words, you can live your life based on it. My friend may come and tell me, you know what, in 2033, I'm going to climb the, uh, the outside of the Eiffel Tower. And I would say, that's dumb. <laughs> but... I, I would say, how, how can I possibly know that you will do that in 2033? How do we know the Eiffel Tower will still be there? How do I know that you're going to get through security? How do I know that you're going to be physically capable? How do I know you're even going to possibly be alive? That friend of mine does not have power in himself to make the words that he is speaking reliable. Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To do what? to unite all things, to conclude all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth in him. 
So here's the part where, you know, lots of mangled bodies at the end of the slide. And we're just going we're gonna, to we're gonna pick them apart. Because you've got words like purpose, setting forth, plan, all these things. They, they start to sound similar. They sound similar because they are similar. <laughs> so let me try to break down what Paul's saying here. Paul, Paul's giving you three proofs here that this knowledge that you now know is reliable knowledge. It's the, it's the knowledge that you can bank your life on. And he, he does it with the three phrases, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time. I'll look at each phrase. Take that kid off the pile. Let's look at the first one. God is leading creation to this day according to his own good plan. So verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. According to his purpose. The word is good purpose. Uh, according to his good purpose. I kind of wonder if in the back of his mind, Paul was thinking of Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does all that he pleases. Or Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. Psalm 135, 6. I don't know if that's what Paul was thinking of. Sure seems to me like it might have been. What is Paul saying when he says, according to his good purpose? Paul is reminding the Christians, God is in no ways whatsoever ever dependent on mankind. He exists outside of time and space. He is the only being in the universe who is fully independent. He can, he can speak and create light out of nothing. Just go talk about that at lunch. <laughs> he, he's never conflicted. He's never indecisive. He's never wrong. Because he is perfect, he always acts in line with his own will. Sometimes you want to do one thing and you end up doing another thing, not so God. So his choice to reveal the mystery of Christ to us was according to his good purpose. As his choice, as was his choice to, to draw all creation forward to that one day of judgment when all creation is going to stand before Christ the King. Paul is saying this is according to his purpose. This fact can be trusted because it's God who said it. Not your friend telling you he's going to the Eiffel Tower. It can be trusted, secondly, because God's directing everything toward this day according to his predetermined plan. So it's according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. That word set forth means to plan beforehand. Make a shopping list before you go to the grocery store. It'll help you. Plan it beforehand. It's yet another word, the way Paul's using it here, that's pointing to the action of God in eternity past. He set it forth. He planned beforehand in Christ. So what is Paul saying here? He is saying God is setting forth, God is putting into action a pre-existent plan. Think of an architect who draws up plans for a new home. And the, the home has not been built yet, but we know that home is going to be built. God is the architect, and the grand design of his plans is to bring about a day when every created thing in the spiritual, unseen, and in the physical, seen realms is all going to answer to Jesus Christ. That's God's blueprint. And there ain't no county plans examiner to get in the way of the execution of that blueprint. It is all planned beforehand in Christ. So we are completely confident that the day is coming because God has shown us the blueprint. The outcome is sure. God is, thirdly, faithfully executing his predetermined plan to ensure it actually happens. So God has not entrusted his beautiful blueprint into the hands of anybody except himself. He's not a fantastic architect who gives his plans to a really rotten contractor. Verse 10 is a plan for the fullness of time. This is where all the similar vocabulary can start to make things a little fuzzy unless you're just 
moving slowly one at a time. So Paul's dipping into the Greek language here with this word plan. Sometimes it's, it comes from the same root as steward. A steward. What's a steward? Well, someone who's entrusted with overseeing the affairs of another. But Paul's using it in this active sense of stewarding or, if you like, ordering or arranging. I think the simplest way to put it is he's executing the plan. So check this out. God is the one stewarding his own plan. He's not entrusted the execution of his plan or his purposes to somebody else. God himself is making sure everything unfolds exactly as it's supposed to in regard to the mystery of Christ. He's putting every aspect of his plan into effect at just the right moment. Think about this. He is administrating his plan exactly on schedule. That's what the fullness of time refers to. He's talking about the moment when Christ returns. He used that phrase, the fullness of time, in Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So there he uses it to speak about the incarnation, the moment Jesus comes to earth. Here he's using it to speak about Christ's return. So there it talks about his birth. Here it refers to the exact moment of Christ's return. And in both cases, in both cases, everything happens exactly according to plan. Think about the incarnation, though. It didn't look like much of a plan. Wise men getting lost. Where exactly do we go? The inn is full. Where's the baby going to be born? Just happens to be this, you know, thing going on where they got to go to Bethlehem. It looks like things are not according to plan. God says, no, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And you can bet when the fullness of time comes, Christ shall return. We know it's precisely right. God does things in his own way. There are no accidents with God, ever. Just as sure as the birth of Jesus happened at the exact right time, so the return of Jesus shall happen at the exact right time. What if it were today? Are you ready? Because when that day comes... Every single created thing will be evaluated based upon its relationship to Jesus Christ in this life. Are you ready for that day? Paul's whole point here is that this is, this is a, a, a bit of information that is to be trusted, is to be relied upon. It's to live your life based on this. It is God's plan. He made it in eternity past. He's executing it perfectly in real time, and he will personally steward it until it's perfect fulfillment. My friend cannot guarantee that he will climb the Eiffel Tower in 2033, but my God can guarantee all things will be summed up in Christ on the last day. The reality that your personal future will culminate in how you have related to Jesus Christ in this life is a truth that can be trusted because of the person who spoke it. The destination is clear. All things will culminate with an evaluation of them in relation to Christ. The destination can be known, and the one who announced it can be trusted to make it happen. What does that mean for you? I'll tell you right away what it means for you. Prepare to meet your God. Every one of you. Satan is a liar. He has been a liar since the beginning of creation. Liar's going to lie. This liar is going to tell you that your life just evaporates at the end, that there is no eternity. This liar is going to tell you that you can just sneak into heaven the way you snuck into seventh grade one day. Those are lies. You are on you. You are on a one-way street that leads to Jesus. You are on a collision course with the day of judgment. There are no off-ramps or back streets. There's no bypasses. Paul said this, Romans chapter 14, verse 10, for we will all 
stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Each of us. Every individual one of us will give an account of ourselves to God. And the conclusion of that examination will result in the permanent assignment of your body and soul to either heaven or hell. Jesus himself said this. The Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, you might be thinking, oh, at least I could just die first. Guess what? You're going to be awakened. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Every soul here will be clothed with a new body that is fit for either the enjoyment of God forever in the new creation or the punishment of God. (laughs) Punishment of God forever in hell. Jesus spoke this truth again and again. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he will say to those in his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's a binary decision, friend. It is life or death, heaven or hell. There's no fuzzy middle with God. Purgatory, schmurgatory. Ain't in your Bible. Don't believe it for a nanosecond. You think you're going to get some second chance? There are none. That lie will lead you straight to hell. There is only one day of judgment, and this judgment is all based upon how you have related to Jesus Christ in this life. Have you repented from your sins and put all your confidence in Jesus to save you? God sent forth his son, born of the virgin, who gave up his life for you. Have you decided that the only way you're going to get to heaven is if God looks on you and sees the perfect life of Jesus instead? Have you given up all hope of earning what cannot be earned? Have you decided your only hope is to be found in Christ? There's absolutely nothing holding you back from reaching for Jesus. Otherwise, these words of Jesus are, are, are a total lie. He said, come to me. All. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It don't matter what you've done. (laughs) You come to Christ, and he will forgive you. So come to him. Come all the way to Jesus, not, not part of the way. Reject your sins, admit your guilt, tell him you're willing to lose everything in order to have him. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus himself said, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. When's the last time you just, or have you ever just looked at everything you have and say, I, I, I give it all up in order to follow you, Lord. 
You have to be willing to leave everything behind, your, your money, your career, your standing in society, and you come to Jesus. If you don't come to Jesus now, you may be assured that you will come to him then. Come to him now and be saved from your sins. Or if you wait to come to him then, you'll be eternally punished for them. I so hope that the Lord saves you. Christian brother, sister, since you've already come to Jesus, doesn't the thought of that great day, the final day, clarify a lot of things in life for you? What are you living for? So I'm just talking to the Christians here now. Just think for a moment. It's usually good for us to do this. What am I really, really living for? Listen to Jesus again. Don't seek what you're to eat, what you are to drink. Don't be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, for where your treasure is, what comes next? There will your heart be also. Where's your heart, Christian? What are you treasuring? You willing to be generous with time and money for the things of God in order to create space for God to have to come through for you? Or are you just going to take care of everything for God? I think if you have God in sight, you have the end goal in sight, this is very clarifying in life. Even your sufferings, yeah, even your sufferings in one sense, they just don't matter as much. How come? It's a comparative I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Christian, all the spiritual blessings are yours in Christ. He has lavished his grace on you. Don't waste your life living like you're spiritually poor, more enthralled with the YouTubes than with his word, more caught up in your platform than his purposes, more worried about what you might lose rather than what you will gain. Right here, right now, I say, Christian, do business with the Lord. The great day is coming. You can be certain of that. I was sound asleep at 429 a.m., and my world, our worlds, flipped, literally flipped upside down at 430 a.m. One moment, everything changed. Brother, sister, live like that moment, the great day of his return, might be now.